Reading from Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on State Street, Straight Street, <laughs> and ask for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul's testimony is found in 1 Timothy, and that is on page 184. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to, into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, 
Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, Clara. Hey, everybody. Happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers. Yeah, I'm 38 today. Thanks for noticing. Um, one of the uh, one of my biggest saying pet peeves is when people say perception is reality. And the reason why it bothers me is only because perception isn't reality. In fact, the reason we have a word perception is because the word perception and the word reality aren't interchangeable because perception is something that reality isn't. And so it, it's always kind of bothered me that that's kind of this big saying. In fact, I remember um, learning about like people, uh, pastors often like to brag to each other about how good they are at marriage counseling. Whenever like anything good happens, even if like 50 bad things happens, we remember the good things. And so people, I've heard people say, <coughs> so there was this husband and wife and the husband didn't want to come to counseling. The wife was talking about the blah, blah, blah. There's a problem and the husband didn't want to see there was a problem. And I said, listen, perception's reality. If she says there's a problem, there's a problem. Right, and all the other pastors are like, mmm, and I'm like, that's idiotic, right? Because if your wife says there's a problem, there's a problem. But the problem is that your wife says there's a problem. It's not necessarily the problem she says is the problem. So if your wife says there's a problem, there's a problem, which means you have to talk. The content of that talk needs to begin with trying to agree on what the problem is, and it should not proceed on the assumption that the wife's perception is necessarily inerrant. In fact, both people probably perceive things a little skewed. That's why we have these things called friends. <laughs> right? And then there are those of us who've interacted with reality for a little while and have actually experienced having a perception about what something was going to be like and then experiencing that reality as unlike the perception we had had about it. Because one of the biggest things to recognize about that saying perception is reality is what it really means is it's aphoristic discernment is just people are going to naturally proceed on the basis of their perception. That's what it means. People are just going to proceed on the basis of what their perceptions are. And so the question you've got to ask yourself about perceptions, whether they're your perceptions or anybody else's, is are you going to proceed on the basis of the perception or are you going to try to persuade them that their perception is poppycock? Right? And one of the fundamental bases of the Christian faith is that when we come to Jesus, we are going to be persuading ourselves that our perceptions are poppycock all the time. 
Because the sinful nature, the sinful condition that we find ourselves in is radically opposed to God. It's enormously self-centered. Therefore, we constantly, emotionally and psychologically misinterpret reality to our own advantage all the time. And we're constantly wanting, therefore, to tell God he's wrong about everything. And so part of faith is hearing Jesus say, I'm actually not wrong. And then for us to take what he says he's not wrong about and go back to all the reasons we have for why he's wrong and redo the math. Because here's the th- one of the things that probably should occur to us even if we're atheists about the idea of God. And that is that if God is this essentially infinitely complex being in his perfections and is interacting with a mildly complicated physical reality in which we inhabit, he would be a relatively misunderstandable being to us, right? If there are all these sort of fibrous spiritual movements of like his virtues and his beliefs and his being and the realities that those are all interacting with and how they all interact with each other, it would be like, if you could like graph the internet, it would be a hundred thousand times more complicated than whatever infinitely complicated drawing you could generate with a computer in 70 years. I mean, this is only a dandelion. And so one of the things that Christians have to constantly be on the lookout for is ways in which we are misunderstanding God. I don't know if you remember this, but I was not good at math when I was in school. And it's not because I can't do math. It's because I have an Italian mother and I'm the youngest boy in my family, which means I basically was led to believe that I walked on water since the day I was born. And so my mom, thinking I'm the smartest person ever to exist in physical humanity, got me in advanced math when I was in about fifth grade, which is incidentally also the time about which you start liking girls. And a girl who's a year older than you might as well be in a Sports Illustrated issue. The exoticness and the divine superiority that those 12 months makes is just profound. And so I learned no mathematics after that moment. And so I always thought it was helpful for someone like me who was learning no mathematics that when we were given homework, the answers were in the back of the book. And I thought, my teacher must be really dumb. And so he probably doesn't know math either. So there's no reason to pay attention. And so, but what I, I didn't realize until I was like, you know, maybe in my 20s, give or take, is that the reason why math books have the answers in the back, unlike social studies books, is because the point of math isn't to learn the answer, but to figure out how to do it. And so you you do the math problem, and then you're supposed to look in the back of the book to see if you're right or wrong. And if you're wrong, you go, oh, 65 is not the same as 2,432 prime, which isn't a real math thing, right? And so... The point is you look in the back and you had two options when you looked in the back of the book. You could say, that's kind of weird that this MIT professor doesn't know how to do algebra. Or you could say, it's probably 65. I probably did this wrong. And so you go back and you'd redo the math. That's the whole point of having the answers in the back of the book. So you can check your work, right? Okay, I'm going to say something that you may not like. Okay, are you ready for this? This is the main reason the Bible has commands in it. It's the main reason the Bible— So if somebody hurts you 
and you do the math on what you should do about that, and your answer is, I should kill the SOB, okay? And you go to the back of the Bible book, and you read what Professor Jesus put in there. You know what it says? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then you go, huh, because I got kill him. And the thing says, forgive. I think I might have. So, and that's the moment where you say either I'm an advanced post-Kantian modern person and I understand reality properly and Jesus, that primitive Gnostic something didn't. Or you say, Jesus is Lord and Christ, the creator of all things and the understander of everything, the only wise God. I might have done my moral math wrong. And one of the things that God says about himself throughout the whole Bible, we could preach a number of sermons on that idea, right? One of the things is that God says that he is gentle. All through the Bible. All through the Bible. The Bible says that God is profoundly, lovingly, compassionately, mercifully gentle. And yet, almost all of us on some level probably feel like he's not. That whatever God's care of the universe is, it often does not feel gentle. And for most of us, we think, you can say it with me if you want, perception is reality. God's care doesn't feel gentle, and we think perception is reality. Um, this is what Scripture tells us about what Jesus, who is God in a human being, he said it about himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the God who is there, because I am that person. He said, he's walking up to Jerusalem, which is the city who he's laid his love upon, the people he's laid his love upon. And this is what he said about him. As he was walking down the hill, and he could see the city down in front of him, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather you like your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. And I, I don't know if you know this, you may not have grown up on a farm. We're in Wisconsin, so it's actually not probably that bad a percentage. But ch chickens are actually not the most psychologically advanced creatures on the face of the earth. They, they um, you know, when you, when you put them together in little pens, you have to actually cut their beaks off for what they're going to do to each other. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a little crazy. Um, and yet, God sees the way these enormously unsophisticated, funny little birds care for their chicks. He gave the, the whole bottom of their flabby little tummies covered with this down, this like really warm and yet super soft feather. And she just like snuggles in on them like this and like puts her wings around them. And they're just warm in there and they're safe in there. And that's the metaphor that Jesus used for the city that was going to basically beat him to death in a couple of days. That's what he said. He said, you killed every prophet I've sent you. <laughs> You've stoned those God has sent, and here I come, and I've, I want to gather you together, 
and it's just not probably going to work. So there's a couple things we need to talk about related to this. The first is this. You're right. It doesn't feel gentle. Like if you're, if there might be some people here who be like, you know what, Nick, for the kind of, what I've done in my life, I mean, there's always, you know, the, the people who were like, who've like ridden hard and put themselves away wet for 45 years, you know, and they show up at church and they've got the big anchor tattooed all the way around their arm and the dragon coming off the side of their head. And they're like, they're like, listen, God has been nothing but gentle with me because I've been nothing but rough on everything else. You know, there's always people like that. And you're like, you're right. Way to find that insight. But for a lot of people, here's what we really think. We really think God created us, and so he has a responsibility directly to us so that we would flourish and be happy. And two, we've been pretty good. Like, we haven't done anything to interrupt that. We've been good little creations, and so God really ought to be doing really good stuff to us, and our lives should be going decently well, and we should be pretty happy, and even if we didn't win the looks lottery, things should still be feeling pretty good in our body, and we should have work to do, and it ought to be going a little bit better than it is. And it's true that perception really does feel like reality. It really does feel that way. And most people, most Christians, most Christians who've been Christians for a while feel that way. I feel that way sometimes. We're always falling back into feeling that way. If you're not feeling that way, it is because you are intentionally climbing out of that muddy pit right now. Because the human heart is always going there. Because the human heart is always justifying itself. Not God. The human heart doesn't go, what thought can I think that shows that God is God? The human heart is always saying, what thought can I think that shows that I'm awesome? And that things should be done for me? And that I should be the center of reality? You can see this... Um, <clears throat> felt lack of gentleness in this passage, right? I mean, God isn't particularly gentle with Paul, is he? Right? I mean, what God does to Paul is about the same as getting hit in the face with a two-by-four, right? He's minding his own business, going to Damascus, and God comes out of nowhere with light and knocks him down, and he falls to the ground, and then in the midst of that daze, he yells questions at him like an interrogator. Hey, why are you persecuting me? Who's you? I'm cheating. Right? And then he demands him to answer in sort of this dazed state. And then he's like, and then he doesn't even tell him that he loves him and has a wonderful plan for his life. Right? Like he should have got a crew track right then. Look, this is going to get a little hairy, but God loves you. Right? He doesn't get any of that. He goes, go into the city and somebody will show up to tell you what's going to happen to you. And he doesn't even narrow it down to like, to to put out, you're going to die. He strikes him blind so he can't see anything. He has to take somebody's hand. And when he gets into the city, he's been so kind of like emotionally mutilated by this moment that I didn't mean to alliterate that much, that he can't even eat or drink for three days. And I'll just tell you, Damascus is a desert city. The road to it is parching. And he just can't get up. He can't drink. He can't eat. He is traumatized by what's happened to him. And Ananias, like, I mean, he, he had a little bit better. I think I'm having problems. There's nobody up there, of course. Okay, here we go. 
So Ananias, this is what God says to Ananias. This is reality. The Lord called him a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord. He answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And you just can't help but believe Ananias is like, maybe there's another Ananias. <laughs> right? Because basically what he hears his perception of that reality is something like, go turn yourself into the crazy Christian-killing fellow from Jerusalem, and maybe he'll torture you to find your friends before he drags you 150 miles to kill or imprison you permanently. Right? I mean, that's kind of the perception there. And notice that when he asks God what's up with that, at no point does God say nothing's going to happen to you. Did you notice that? God didn't say, listen, he's not going to kill you. He just said, listen, I want Paul. I want Saul. I've chosen him. Now go. And then Ananias says, okay. <laughs> and off he goes. And you look at those two episodes, and you look at them really in their context, and you look at what the text really says, and they do not appear gentle at all. It's still. And it seems like God's claims to be profoundly gentle seem like they could use a little support, right? But here's the thing that we need to recognize, is that God is gentle. God is enormously, profoundly, deeply, mercifully, compassionately, empathetically gentle. If your perception is that God isn't gentle— if Jesus is right, your perception is wrong. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this to try to expand our vision a little bit. And I'm just going to give you three ways to look at this to see the gentleness of God in the seemingly ungentle world. And the first one is to see that God is gentle as God. Like one of the things that we think about in terms of gentleness is what, are we, what and who are we talking about? When somebody who is profoundly weak and entirely unempowered isn't particularly rough, that doesn't surprise us. It's actually when somebody is enormously empowered in terms of authority and enormously strong in terms of power, when someone like that is gentle, that actually is noteworthy. And God is not only enormously powerful, but he has the authority as creator to do with us whatever he wants to. We imagine all kinds of moral obligations that he must have to us that are mainly just that, our imagination. And yet, here we are. Not dead. Not vaporized not prevented from existing in the first place, and not already receiving an eternal judgment that we definitely deserve without Christ's death for our behalf, on our behalf. It's just— The second one is that God is gentle as Savior, and that is— that when you begin to see God's gentleness related to the fact that God is God, you begin to realize that gentleness is being mediated through a thousand things that are true about God. And not only true about God's internal character, but things that are true about God's 
internal character as it relates to a relatively complicated world. And one of the things that's happening between God's infinitely complex internal character and a relatively complicated world is the main priority of what he reveals to us he's doing, and that is redemption. That Christ came, died for the sins of all people, offered redemption to all people, and that God has determined that word of that would get out to all people everywhere in every generation. And so God's gentleness serves his mercy, and God's greater mercy is his plan of redemption for all people. What is God actually doing in Acts 9? Right? If you've been here for several weeks, at the very first moment of Acts 1, Jesus said to his followers, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about the message. And you're going to start in Jerusalem, and then Samaria and Judea, and then you're going to go to the very ends of the earth. And what we talked about last week was, by the end of chapter 8, the word of Jesus had gotten out to Judea and Samaria. So what's next? The ends of the earth, right? And what does God say he's recruiting in this passage? The spearhead of that plan. This crazy, murdering psychopath from Jerusalem, Saul of Tarsus. He, chapters 9 through about 12, are God choosing Saul and changing Peter's heart so that both of them would know the gospel is to go out to the whole world. And then through Paul it does. And then through the change in Peter and Paul, the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish church, and the Gentile church, through these two, could be brought together into one church. That's what God is doing in chapters 9 to 12. This is the beginning of that. His severity explicitly is for you. And by you, I don't mean that generally. I don't even mean that plurally. I mean you, like, erase you and write your name. Write your, your name for John, David, Sarah, Alice, whatever, for you. It explicitly says this because who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles is everybody who's not a Jew, which is most of us. My wife has done gone home, okay? And so what he is saying is the reason why he is dealing with Paul with this level of severity, Saul, and the reason he's dealing with Ananias with this level of severity is because through his severity to them, his gentle mercies can go out to all others. In Christianity, this is actually referred to as the way of the cross. That is, the way that Christ took on the severity of God for our forgiveness— and in sending out the message of Jesus, we often take on practical suffering so the message can get out of God's mercy and gentleness to all people. And when you realize that, you realize the purpose of God in his severity to these two men. God is actually being globally gentle by being globally merciful to billions of people in this moment of severity with these two people. And if you don't see that, you're just not going to see the beauty of the glory of the gentleness of God in that moment. You just can't. But does that mean that these people are just cannon fodder? All God wants to do is just like use them up? No, it's not. Um, because an, a third way to look at this is that God is enormously gentle as the doctor of our souls. There are a lot of people who essentially believe this. 
They either believe what I said before, that I'm a pretty good person, God should make my life go pretty well, or they believe, okay, I believe the whole Jesus thing, which is that I commit some sins, and when I commit some sins, I get some red in my ledger, right? And what needs to happen is I need that, I need that ledger to get wiped out, right? Like Scarlett Johansson said in the first Avengers movie. And it's just a cultural reference. And so what I need then is I just need somebody to pay off that debt. Now, that's actually in a way true. It is true that when we commit sins, there's a moral price that is judicially required for our actual guilt. And God is morally responsible as the good ruler sovereignly of all things to inflict that. And therefore, atonement is necessary. A willing, innocent person to stand in and interpose for us so that our debt ledger can be wiped clean. That is one of the metaphors of salvation. It's called justification. But if that's all you believe about justification, that that's all that being a Christian is, what you believe is that you personally have escaped humanly unscathed by sin, which is a fantasy. And so for either you to come to Christ in the first place, or for you to be formed in Christ as you learn to walk with him, the sinful condition in us, which has turned us in on ourselves and confused our mind and has reappropriated everything that was given to us for the glory of God, for the glory of our own selves, that has to get totally reworked. We need to become a new creation. We need to have the image of God remade. We have... We need to be re unclothed and reclothed with something different, or all metaphors of the New Testament for it. And in order for that to happen, you and I need a treatment that is invasive and painful. The sinful condition is like a metastasized disease that is destroying everything, and we need a treatment that is going to be really, really painful. And the question is, for the doctor or nurse giving it to you, how gentle can they be and still give you what you require? A doctor can take you within an inch of your life and do it gently relative to what needed to be done. Do you understand that? Or if you've received an injury and a nurse is trying to care for you, you have a dis dislocated shoulder, it already hurts. They're going to try to care for you. The pain you feel while they're caring for you, they're not really creating. The injury itself and its healing process, that pain is just built into that. There's nothing they can do about it, but they're going to set your shoulder. That's their job. And they must. Or they may be gentle, but in the most perverse kind of way. It's like the parent who's gentle and disciplined, but doesn't drive home what needs to be driven home to the heart of their child. Were you gentle? Not like Jesus is gentle. Nope. And so, one of the things that we need to take away from this is that pain and shock, even shock to the point of a certain level of trauma, are sometimes divine tools. And the question, and the thing that we need to recognize about this is this. They are opportunities, not definitive accomplishments. 
So, for example, have you ever heard this on like a doctor show? The doctor says, we're going to do this treatment and we'll see how Jan responds. I remember people say that. Responds. Why? Because this is what she requires. We're going to take her within an inch of her life. But what really matters is how her body responds to this. She might heal. She might get better. We're going to give her this chemo. And 25% of people, they become cancer-free. Other people, they seem to get worse. But this is all we got. We're going to give it to her. Right? Here's why this is important. The inflicting of pain, the use of shock, these sorts of treatments come to us when we require them. Paul needed this. I mean, p- people want to—you look, look at how rough God was with Paul, but, but think about this. The first verses tell us exactly the state of mind Paul was in. It said that he was breathing out murderous threats against the church, meaning that language is very specific. I mean, Luke is saying he just couldn't stop talking about it. His heart was so bound up with his hatred of this new way, this, these new Christian people. He, he so hated them that just every breath oozing out of him was this murderous hatred. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to throw them in prison. I'm going to get them all. I'm going to stop this. Right? I mean, it's a problem. Okay? And he was willing to go 145 miles to see who he could jail up in this city. And he it explicitly says, Luke explicitly tells us he was looking for the women too. He wasn't just looking for the pastors. He wasn't looking to go into a church and take, take the men so that the thing would maybe dissolve. He was going to drag whatever women he found that said they believed in Jesus. He was going to drag them by the hair and throw them into the pit of despair in Jerusalem. That was his attitude. And so what does somebody who mentally is in that place need? Why in the Old Testament, in places like Ezekiel, there's a place where the Jewish people have lost their home. They've been entirely dominated by a foreign army. Most of the people in their family have been killed or starved to death. They've seen people cannibalizing other humans to stay alive during the long siege. And now they're being dragged off to a foreign land so that they can be slaves. And God offers a prophetic vision through Ezekiel that is sarcastic with them, taunts, and mocks them. Now, is the purpose of that God saying, I told you so, to people he just was going to kill and damn? Or was the treatment in parallel to the level of stubbornness? If you haven't been a parent, you will have this moment. It, you will have it. You may pass it, you may fail it, you may punt on it, but you will have this moment where you're disciplining your child and you're, you're helping to shape their behavior and sense of who they are in your family really well. And then there comes this moment where they bet down everything on their own defiance. This will happen. Usually they're two something. And so they're too young. They're they're young enough that you're afraid you're going to hurt them. Like you're going to destroy their personality permanently. But they're just like, they're not going to do it. They're not going to eat their food. They're not going to pick up their shoes. And it's always going to be something that like their shoes are there. And you say, sweetie, pick up your shoes. Please put them right there. And they say, no. And you say, okay. Um, And and you start to ratchet things up. All right, well, we're going to put you in timeout. So you pick her up. Put him down. You too? Are you ready to go? Yep. 
appreciate you, sir. And they don't even say no. They act like they don't even understand you, maybe. Right? And you get to this point where, like, what are you going to do? And for parents that spank their kids, and I'm one of them, um, you give them a little one. And you think, this will do it. Right? They'll cry. They cry a little bit. You say, sweetie, pick up your shoes. Put them right there. And they go, nope. And you say, are you sure? Not going to do it. You pick them up and you, and you, and it ratchets up and you get to this point where you're like, I'm about to call child and family services on myself. <laughs> but there is this, some of you parents know what I'm talking about. And some of you parents finally were just like, well, we'll just come at this another day. And maybe that worked out. I'm not here to debate that. But I've had this with a couple of my kids. Not all of them. I've had four kids. I've only had this with two of them. And Lexi and I, I mean, we're in tears afterwards. But it was, a, it was an enormous moment of change. And that's one of the reasons why my—it's weird. My kids have never had the terrible twos for more than about two days. I don't know if that's why. I, I don't think Alexi and I had particularly compliant children. She was known as the mule growing up, and I'm not exactly compliant personally. But, there, here, but here's the thing. Is it loving— to give the stubborn person who is falling into self-damnation whatever is necessary to bring them again to themselves, even if it is to mock and sarcastically gloat over those who have lost everything. Because if Ezekiel is divine revelation, God thinks so. Now, I don't think that there is virtually any situation which you and I can engage in that. I don't. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not saying, hey, we should do that. I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. God will give the cure that's required. And if you want to amp it up in personal pride, you're asking for a more painful treatment. And God may, if he seeks to draw you to himself, give you what you require. And when he does that, it does not necessarily save you. The treatment that he gives you can save you or be what you utilize for another step in the process of damnation. Because when that moment of God's shock or pain, which is necessary to break down pride and selfishness, you can either say, you're right, I give up. I'm, you're right. I, I, I don't know what. Or you can say, damn you. And you can build another little wall, and I'm right, and you're wrong, and how dare you do this to me, and I don't even think there's a God if the world works like this. And you build another wall, and another wall, and God either has to break through another one with even more pain, and even more shock, to even give you a possibility. And every time he does, it's an act of grace. And so every time we reject it, it's another damning step of rejecting the graciousness of God. And every offer becomes either a mechanism of our salvation or a deepening and constricting and searing of our damnation. And the biblical metaphors for this are things like searing our conscience, hardening our heart, and so on. And so you, you and I have to realize that God is an enormously great physician, and he will give us the treatment we require with enormous gentleness. 
but he will give us the treatment we require. And when you receive that seemingly ungentle treatment, the doctor will wait to see how you respond. Whether you'll hate him for it and curse him for it, or whether you'll come to yourself and let the pride go and recognize who you are and what you've been made to be and turn to Christ and be healed. So if it's true that God, God seems ungentle, but that he claims for himself that he is, and those are some of the, I mean, those are just three reasons. There's like, I don't know how many thousands, maybe even millions of reasons why we should think God gentle, even though it seems as though he's not, if we understand who God really is and what he's really like. And I'm not saying all pain is his inflictive care, and I'm not saying that he does that care directly rather than uses it. There's all kinds of complexity in that too. But here's what I think I do know, is that if it's true that God seems ungentle, but he is gentle, then we need to change our perception. We need to change our attitude. We need to believe, trust, and proceed in a world that seems ungentle, as though the Savior that we follow is real and is gentle. So much so that it takes us in a world that is ungentle and makes us gentle. If you don't believe that God is gentle, and if you won't see or investigate why God is gentle, and if it never gets you to the moment of wonder, you won't be substantively gentle. And here's what I mean by substantively. When there's nothing to get out of it. When you get to the place where you really can't see on any earthly level what you're going to get out of being gentle, you're still gentle, then you're substantively gentle. And you will not be that in your character and do it courageously if you don't believe God is gentle. And if you can't see how God is gentle, because you won't be able to figure out how to do it. It'll either be, I'm going to be mean or I'm going to be gentle. Only when you see how and why and with what dynamics God is gentle, can you begin to understand what gentleness actually looks like. And it's only when you understand all of that in relationship to the beauty of God's gentleness that it will take, you'll go to the point from knowledge to knowledge to knowledge to knowledge, and at a certain point, it will become emotionally overwhelming, and there will be wonder. And it is at that point of wonder that Christ can internalize his gentleness in you in such a way as that it's indefatigable. It cannot be overcome by the world. The level of motivation and its certainty and steadiness in you will be so powerful that no matter how painful it will be or how much you can't see a benefit to it, it won't matter anymore. The wonder of the beauty of God in his own gentleness will so capture your imagination that you will be gentle and you'll know how to do it. There's two ways in which I think most of us have to recognize that, that this needs to happen. And the one is 
that if, you, if we really see the gentleness of God and we begin to see it within the glory of God's character, we're going to realize we need to add a lot of wisdom and a lot of patience to our severity. Now, I mean that very specifically. I don't believe you can live a beautiful human life without severity. There are lots of times where you have to say, no, it stops here. I won't let you do that. That's wrong. The pursuit of righteousness and goodness requires a certain amount of severity. Shepherding requires severity. Friendship requires severity. A a friend who punches you in the face could be a very bad friend or a very good one. And so we have to add an enormous amount of wisdom to how we, and patience, to how we engage in severity. There was a there were a couple of, I was at a conference this week in Grand Rapids talking about macroeconomics and Christian faith and their integration, blah, blah, blah. And there were these two seminarians who were arguing with each other about how to properly honor the Lord's Day. And they asked me a couple times if I would weigh in, and I was like, I don't really weigh that much. And, and they were like, you know, they would argue, and it was like 30 minutes, and they were finally like, so what do you think? And I was like, you want to know what I think? And they were like, yeah. I was like, I think you should be asking each other questions. That's what I think. You don't even know what each other's talking about. You're talking past each other. I can, I can hear it just sitting here. If you would just say, what do you think it means to honor the Lord's day? Why do you think that? What passages do you think about when you do that? Then you would actually know what each other's talking about. And then you could yell at each other. Or maybe you'd agree. But I think you'd do better and you'd actually feel like the other person was listening. It would be much more helpful. And the reason I could say that to them was not because I'm better, but because I'm just older. You know, these guys are in their early 20s, and that's what I did when I was in my early 20s. And then I realized that's not how people change their mind, and that's not how people feel valued, and people won't give an inch if they don't feel valued, and they'll intellectualize it, and they'll believe it's all in their argument. But it has to do with lots of other things as well as their argument. And one of the things I think you notice, too, is when we look at the aged, the real gray heads among us, the ones we really respect— in a lot of ways have really tempered their severity. And the old people that grow old very ungraciously are the ones that get really grumpy and find something wrong with everything and like to tell lots of people about what's wrong with everything. And not the person who's doing it wrong, but other people. And in the grace of aging, you can see how gentleness is meant to engage with humility over time. And then the other is, we need to put a lot of gospel into our understanding of gentleness and patience and kindness. Because otherwise, it will produce just weakness. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and so many of the philosophers of the modern era never could understate Christianity and mostly hated it. They could not understand how Christians believed that Meekness, not weakness. And humility and compassion and generosity are the fountainheads of strength. And that's why there are some philosophers that refer to the ethics of Jesus as the feminine virtues. Well, if God had wanted to be incarnate in a woman, he certainly could have pulled that one off. But instead what happened is God, in the risen person of Jesus, beat Paul half to death so that he could become one of the greatest advocates in human history of gentleness. I mean, think about this for a second, okay? 
the guy who presides over the murder of the first martyr, who's going more than 100 miles out of his way to arrest people and drag them off, women and, men and women, I mean, just about the meanest person that you could possibly imagine, becomes the New Testament advocate for the beauty, strength, and courageousness of meekness and gentleness. I mean, that's pretty funny. In Philippians 4, a lot of Christians have verse 4 memorized and verse 6 memorized, and they pretend verse 5 doesn't exist. Just memorize the whole paragraph would be my advice, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Great verse to be happy. Yeah. And 6, do not be anxious about anything but in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. Let go and let God. Great. But there's a verse in the middle, and the verse in the middle is this. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone. Why? Because God— Jesus is near. Every time you talk to anybody, anytime you treat anybody in any way, any, anytime there's any human interaction with a Christian, Jesus is close by. So you, if you're nothing else, you should be gentle. Or in 2 Corinthians, also by Paul, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face, but bold when away. Meaning that when you read Paul's writings, he sounds really bold. But when he was face to face with people, he seemed really timid. Do you see how he is, he's already answering Nietzsche 2,000 years before the guy ever wrote a thing? He's saying, yeah, that's how I will be mistaken. I will be courageous, but I will say what needs to be said lovingly and kindly and gently to draw people to salvation, but with the heart of the message that has to be said. It's just got to be said. And so this is what people, when they read it on paper, they'll be like, oh, he's really hard. But that's exactly what I said when I was with them, and they thought I was timid. And he said, here's why. Because when I look at Jesus, Jesus' manner and all the hard things he had to say, he was meek and he was— he was gentle. I mean, think about this. How many times in the last two years have you encouraged somebody to be meeker? Right? Just raise your hand. Yep, I encouraged somebody to be meeker. That's the word I used. Right? Nobody. Why? Because culturally we reject our misunderstanding of that idea because it just sounds like being a doormat and being weak. But when Paul appealed to these people and the character that they should have as Christians, he didn't even just say gentleness. He added in meekness to intensify the lowliness of the position they should put themselves in, and he connected it directly to Jesus. And then in Galatians 5, he says, one of the fruits of the Spirit, when the Spirit is present, one of the things that always produces is gentleness. In Colossians, he's talking about what Jesus was like and what Jesus does to people. And when you put on Christ, what does that mean? When you believe in Jesus, he says, it's like you take off sin, death, and hell, and you put on Jesus. And what that looks like is you clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And these things are virtues. And when you understand love, love will show you how they interrelate. So when you say, but how should I be compassionate? And how should I be virtuous in these ways? Understanding love and how it relates to the love shown in Christ will help and allow you to understand how to be meek and how to be gentle and yet not be a doormat or whatever the negative connotation of that is. To be it with strength. And none of these lists are ever enjoined on one gender. 
In 1 Timothy 6, when he tells Timothy to flee loving money, because loving money is a root of all kinds of evil, he says, instead, flee from all this and pursue. And then he gives like a master list of like righteous characteristics. Like if you're going to have a short list of like, this is what you're pursuing in terms of virtue. Here's what you're pursuing, right? So you've got righteousness. That's a good, healthy meat steak kind of word. Godliness, yep. Faith, right? That's one of the big ones. Love, endurance, or perseverance. Those are all, those are all tough words. And then gentleness. Like he's only got, he only uses five words to sum up the pursuit of all Christian virtue brought together in the glory of Christ. And gentleness he puts in there. And then in First Peter, when First Peter talks about how you should talk about not to non-Christians, about the fact that, listen, Jesus is the undisputed Lord of everything. And you're going you're gonna to believe that someday and do it before he makes you. That's a hard message. And what Peter says is when you explain to people the reason why you believe that, because you shouldn't just try to force them, you should explain to them the reason for the hope that's within you. But when you do it, do it with gentleness in terms of the personal communication and with respect to who they are as a human being or the position that they hold. It is true that in the state of our sinful condition, even redeemed by Jesus, even with the Holy Spirit working in us, where our minds often go and our emotions often go is to believe that God just isn't gentle. He's not really that merciful. He's not really that compassionate. And yet all through the life of Jesus, all of the scriptures written, God is always showing himself and explaining himself to be a enormously and deeply and perfectly compassionate and gentle God. Which one are you going to stake your life on? I mean, that's what this comes down to. It doesn't come down to whether or not you are sufficiently gentle or whether or not you can put out of your mind once and for all and forever the feeling that God isn't gentle. That's not, that's not the issue. The question is, who are you going to trust? Because you don't have to perform perfect gentleness. Jesus has already performed everything for you on the cross. That's over. It's done. If you turn to Jesus, every moral performance you ever have to do your whole life, is, he's already been perfectly gentle for you. The question is, who are you going to trust? And if you trust Jesus, the answer in the back of his math book is that God is just, and that God is, God is generous, and God is gentle. That God is gentle. You may not perceive, but, you're do, but his, his, the argument is, Christian, if you don't believe that God is gentle, or anybody if you don't believe that God is gentle, Jesus' claim is, you're doing the math wrong. That's the claim. You're doing the math wrong. God is an enormously misunderstandable being because he's enormously complex. His relationship to us is enormously complicated. It's the reason he gave us the answers so that we could check our work and know when it's wrong. And the question is, are you going to believe him that that's wrong and redo it and turn to him for that wisdom and allow him to rebuild your attitude and redo that stuff? Or are you going to build another wall around your self-certainty 
that if there's even a God, that God isn't generous and that God isn't gentle. Because Jesus' words for you are this. Insert your name. How long I have wanted to gather you like a chick, like a mother hen gathers its chicks in, and to hold you and to care for you and to love you and to show his gentleness to you. And your response is, begs the question for how that verse ends. Whether it ends with, but, but you're, you're not willing. Or something else. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would do what you want with what I've said. I pray that you'd take the things that you agree with and that you'd press them into the hearts and consciences of people. And the things that you don't agree with, you would allow them to pass away. I pray that people would, that we all would see your gentleness, that we would recognize um, how badly the sinful heart does moral math in the broken world we're in, that we would have constantly in our minds how misunderstandable you are by your very nature, and the fact that we misunderstand you says nothing about how good your revelation is, because we hardly pay attention to it anyway. And we pray that you'd send us back to you again to see how you are gentle and good, and that that would bring us to a place of wonder, and that then out of joy and thankfulness, we would be gentle people in a way that's courageous and honorable. We pray in his name. Amen.